My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international economic law. In today's episode, I consider the relationship between commerce and international law. Commerce itself is made of two elements. On one hand, we have resources, and the other, markets. So many of the international rules that have been developed have been about providing then international legal subjects with access to resources and access to the markets where the commodities could be bartered. I explore this relationship with a discussion on cotton. Cotton was the very first global manufacturing industry and is in fact the source of many of the laws that we have today, laws that pertain to trade, to banking, to finance, um, and even to intellectual property. So I said to you before, how many pairs of jeans are manufactured in England a year? And the answer, well, I should have said the UK, not England. The answer, 200. That's it, 200 a week. That's what's produced in the UK. Why? The whole manufacturing sector has been disrupted. So we have this then situation where Cotton is now coming en masse from South Asia into England. And who is troubled by this? I'd mentioned them earlier. Wool manufacturers. Wool, as we said, is costly. We know it's costly because it's related then to and have to have an animal. I have to feed the animal. I have to have the ability to shear the animal and so on and so forth. So what do wool manufacturers ask Parliament to provide? Protection. Protection from the upstart manufacturers. Protection from the imports. And what does Parliament begin to impose in England? Tariffs. Taxes on cotton that is being imported into England. And the aim is to make the cost of these textiles, these cotton textiles, more expensive than the wool textiles to protect the local industry. What does Parliament do next? The goods are still coming, even with the tariffs. It's still more cost effective to bring in cotton. They begin to ban products, to outlaw products. Which products do they outlaw? Any woven goods. You can bring raw cotton, you can bring spun cotton. Eventually they prohibit spun cotton as well. The only thing that you can bring in made of cotton into England is raw cotton. Now that's interesting. So we're not opposed to cotton, but we're opposed to manufactured cotton because that means all the added value is acquired elsewhere. Does anyone remember what I said to you about cacao? About chocolate? Raw cacao? No tariffs or 4%? Ground cacao? 
a little bit higher. Cacao butter, much higher. Chocolate bar, economically prohibitive. That was just a decade ago. But that pattern emerged in the 18th century with the cotton manufacturing industry. So now we're saying, no, you cannot bring any manufactured cotton, only raw cotton. Any cotton that is sold, this was the next rule, any cotton that is sold in England must be spun and woven in England. So think made in England, being stamped on it. Must be. And just so you know, the same rules were adopted in France, the same rules were adopted in Spain, the same rules were adopted in Prussia, now Germany, the same rules were adopted in all of these places. And what were the sanctions for violations? It's amazing too, particularly this was a time, it was actually a very bloody period in English legal history, death. They had capital punishment for anything and everything at the time. Fascinating for anyone who's interested in reading a legal historian, Douglas Hay. There's a fascinating history on the English legal system in the 18th century because of the number of capital crimes that existed, including selling foreign textiles. Now, ultimately, this did not help with the wool and linen sector because the raw cotton was still coming in. Raw cotton, everyone who has worn cotton before versus wool, it's softer. It's more malleable. It takes color better. There are a variety of advantages to cotton in relation to wool. So ultimately, cotton came to dominate. And it was also, though, the basis for a lot of the planning that began to emerge at the time. So when looking at England in terms of policy around national production, and we spoke last week about how all economies are planned, even if we don't call it planned. The difference is either centrally planned, managed planning, indicative planning, but all economies are planned in some way or another. And the beginning of planning happened in the 18th century to deal with these competing manufacturing sectors. And for those who are interested, there's actually a lot written about all the peripheral sectors, right? ancillary sectors that developed. Financial instruments. Financial instruments began at that time as you would loan money to the growers. You would loan money to the merchants. You would buy things in advance. Insurance, because now shipping was taking place. So the insurance sector. The banking sector. The list goes on and on. All of that made possible because of all the evolution that was happening in this one sector. Cotton was the beginning of it all. Now that brings me then to the final part of today's lecture. And the final part I'd like us to focus exclusively on the type of international economic law that emerged. So I'd like us to sort of summarize what we've discussed so far. So Europeans went from being uninvolved in this trans-oceanic trade to being the dominant player in it. More importantly than all, they reshaped how things were produced and this reshaping of how things were produced 
ultimately gave rise to a variety, a hodgepodge of legal rules that persist until today. So the Danish appropriated much of the technology from the Indians. The Danes were very clever. They sent a number of people to study under the Indians, to study under the spinners, under the weavers. And they returned and they began, because we had those prohibitions on bringing in manufacturing goods, but there was no prohibition on bringing in the technology that was used to produce those goods. So the Danes brought in the technology and began to produce the textiles themselves. The French would send people there as well, and the French would copy the styles, the mixing of the colors, the appearance, the aesthetics. They returned and they would produce the same ones. A number of European producers began to export their goods, particularly those that were going to the African continent to buy slaves, they began to export those goods under Indian names because the Indian textiles were the highest valued. They'd been producing them for millennia. They were very skilled at it. So they would slap on the name of that Indian producer. Ultimately, shifting then the manufacturing, shifting then all of that goodwill that had been built around Indian products to Europe. And in the process, they were opening up new markets for themselves. Opening up new markets. And of course, precipitating improvements of skill. So bringing technology from one place to another is not that easy. And once you have that technology, training everyone to utilize it is not that easy. And then upskilling not just your laborers, but upskilling also your engineers, not that easy. So these were a variety of things that they did so that they could themselves compete more strongly with European producers. There were other Europeans producing goods as well. And this is where law came in. A number, as we said, of prohibitions. Only English textiles could be sold in England. Only French textiles could be sold in France. If textiles from elsewhere were coming, they would be slapped with a very high tariff. All of you are familiar with these. What the Danes were doing, what the French were doing, what would those be considered today? in industrial terms, in legal terms. Let's start with the French. So the French copying the styles. What would that be? Copyright A copyright infringement. The Danes taking the technology from the Indians, right? Patent infringement, industrial espionage. The prohibitions that were put on the sale, anti-competitive, the tariffs, the tariffs are prohibited across Europe today. You can't put in place those tariffs unless you're dealing with... So consider then that all of the laws that we have today 
were born of the trade activities that took place in the days of Columbus, the Gama. We are looking at the rules that emerged, the ideas then that came about. What De Vittoria told us about Eusgendium that still dominates. Catholic theologian speaking about how Christians are the only ones who can engage in a just war. Hugo Grotius, Dutch East India Company, he's a lawyer for the company and he wrote The Law of the Seas. Expropriation, massacres, the sinking of ships, all of this used to launch the capitalist era. Protectionism, prohibitions, anti-competitive violations, IP infringements, you name it, that was the standard. I mentioned this in one of the digests. Sven Eckert, a historian, he refers to this period as war capitalism. War capitalism. I don't quite agree with it, and I don't quite agree with it because it requires, for a war, it requires warring factions. And all the warring factions were in Europe. But the ones then that were on the receiving end of this were not engaged in war, they were engaged in self-defense. So it becomes more of a type of genocidal capitalism. Now again, and as always, where is the law in this picture? And as I said to you at the outset, there were three types of law that emerged. The laws that pertained to Europe, and these emerged at the domestic level and at the continental level. The laws that pertained to Europe. International law between European actors beyond Europe. This is how we are when we're on land, and this is how we are towards each other when we were at sea. And also, what I term outer state law. Outer state law. That is the law that we would apply to others. So Europeans, how they would behave towards non-Europeans. And what we observe is that there were variations in the rights and responsibilities, the duties and the privileges. They varied depending on the actor, where the actor originated from. That was essential in determining which legal regime operated. Now, prior to this, and again, return to what I said to you about cotton production. Cotton production happening across three continents. We have it in Mesoamerica, we have it in Africa, and we have it in India. And each there has its own system, its own logic, its own actors. We have what we would term a multipolar world. It's a multipolar world because if you're interested in trading with the Indians, you went to India and you traded with the Indians. And if you're interested in trading with the Africans, you went to Africa and you traded with the Africans. And if you're interested in trading with the Americans, not the United States, the Americas, then you went to the Americas. And each one of those societies, India had 
its own law of nations. And it's a law of nations that was informed by Hinduism. The Chinese had their own law of nations, much of it informed by Confucius. In Mesoamerica, they had their own law of nations. Why? How did the Mayans interact with other people across the continent? No, international law is always about how peoples from different places, whether geographically, whether culturally, whether legally, interact with others. So there were a variety of international laws that were in place that some might refer to as regional laws, but they're still international. As I said to you, two people, two states sign an agreement, that is international law, even though it only concerns two states. It's still international law. A region, a continent, signs an agreement. That is international law, even if it is only operating at the continental level. So in all of those instances, you had a multipolar world, a pluralism. It was endemic to international law. And then the shift that took place was towards a unipolar international law. And that unipolarity is what gave rise to these notions of universality. But unipolarity does not in itself translate into universality, which is why I often say it is European subjectivity positing itself as global objectivity. European subjectivity positing itself as global objectivity. Now, all of these practices ultimately gave rise to the international economic legal framework that we know today. But this, and this is what I will conclude on, this points, and please pay attention here, this point, this points to a key tension. I would talk about a foundational incongruity within the international legal framework. And it's one that we have not resolved and we actually don't know how to resolve. It's one of those unknown unknowns that I mentioned before. We don't know how to deal with it. What did I say to you then in terms of the beginning of international economic law? I spoke to you then about we're moving towards the end of that second great European war. There's a need to rebuild Europe there is a need then to avoid this type of warring behavior. And so we say we would like an international legal regime that is built around cooperation, economic cooperation. And so those institutions, those specialized institutions, Bank of Development, World Bank, International Monetary Fund, the GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, ultimately the WTO, all of these are meant to foster cooperation. But where is Adam Smith in this picture? Where is David Ricardo in this picture? Where is the law of comparative advantage? Where is rational egoism, mercantilism? Everything that we do today is still based upon the self-interest and national interest. 
And if I am thinking about the self, then I am not thinking about the other. And if I am not thinking about the other, then how can I term this cooperation? So we have within international law a responsibility, a duty to cooperate. But how does that duty, how can we reconcile that duty to cooperate with a capitalist system that is contingent on egoism? How can those two be reconciled? Now, some turn around and say it cannot. Down with capitalism. No, that's not the point. Again, return to last week's reading. Max Weber. Why did capitalism emerge in Europe? Because of the type of legal system that was in operation. There was a dialectic between capitalism and this rational law. But how do we decide which laws to adopt? There has to be something informing the laws. The law itself is regulating the behavior. The law is primarily about validity and invalidity. It's procedural. But there has to be something informing it. And in this case, and the poorest reading for this week, was about commerce. And what we've settled on is that economic activity, commerce, economic growth, those are what will inform the laws that we adopt. But even with that, even when thinking in terms of economic growth, the global economy has been growing for decades. And yet that tension persists because the tension points to the inequity in resources and in markets. It points to the inequity in distribution. But why should the English give a damn about the Egyptians? And why should the Egyptians give a damn about the Algerians? And why should the Algerians give a damn about the Botswanans? And why should the Botswanans give a damn about the Mongolians? And the list goes on and on. It's a mercantile capitalist system. That is the tension that we have read to resolve. And until we resolve it, this is the international law that we have. See everyone next week. Thank you.